Hello and welcome to the Donmar Warehouse podcast. My name is Bly Stewart and I'm the resident assistant director. I'm currently assisting Michael Longhurst on Teenage Dick and this week we've been fortunate enough to have the playwright Mike Lou in the rehearsal room with the company. In this edition I'll be talking to Mike about the play and what's been happening in rehearsals so far. So Mike, thank you so much for joining us. How's it been being in London so oh, far? Really happy to be here. How long have you been here? A few days now? Yeah, uh, I don't um, remember days or time. <laughs> both the jet lag and having young kids. Yes, of course. So you were here because your show, Teenage Dick, is being put on at the Donmar yeah. in a few weeks' time. What's that like? I've been really uh, delighted to come into week two of rehearsal. I'm just, I'm relatively new to having a play go on more than say tw- once or twice and mm. so um, coming in and knowing that the actors are so smart and that Mike is like such a like has such a strong hand and it has been like a fun and and like uh, unexpected treat just because I uh, like oh I have to babysit this thing and then I come in and everybody's like really in the tone of it and understands what it is and I'm like oh I guess I <laughs> like what do you need me here for yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's such a, a really great way of thinking about sometimes feeling like uh, you have to babysit a production but what it must mean then to like arrive and be like oh other people are babysitting it for me yeah completely and then also there's like a um, so since it's a adaptation of Richard III set in high school for the American productions um, a lot of the early book work has been about like where are the Shakespearean sort of precedents and what you know how, how does that language work so I came in expecting to do some of that but then instead it was like what is uh, American football? What are the rules of it? And like, what are, what's the how do you, how do high school elections work? And yeah. um, so that dramaturgy was really unexpected and like uh, something that I kind of didn't even think of as as knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, of course, was actually sort of informative on the process in a way that I just hadn't anticipated since. Yeah. Before. Speaking of all of that, so obviously in this rehearsal we have you've come in and the majority of the company are uh, British, so we have been asking a lot about like what are the the rules of this world, the rules of high school. Um, and when you were writing it, did you have any sense about the kind of high school that you wanted to present? Or like, how does that, how did that high school come from Richard III or come from, you know, American teen movies or your own personal experience? It's kind of an amalgam of, of my actual high school experience and sort of the tropes of American high school movies. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that because the uh, stakes in a Shakespeare play are like so, like so huge to the point of being almost unfathomable in a contemporary context, um, in a way, high school kids feel that way, yeah. that the, the stakes are so huge. And sometimes, as it turns out, the, the, uh, the consequences of high school life, which seem so, so protected, are actually life and death. And mm. so that smashing up of like sort of Shakespearean stakes and language in kind of a like an almost archetypal American high school was was interesting to me and sort of like what would come out of that friction. Mm-hmm. And did you draw on in doing like this research about archetypes or its choice to look at those archetypes? Did you draw any inspiration from any of the teen movies specifically? No, I just uh, I mean, but they're so integrated in the fabric of of growing up and yeah, and I like and I guess. Um, I had assumed that it's like sort of integral to the American fabric of growing up, but then I come here and everybody's like, oh, I've seen Clueless and I've seen things I hate about you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm surprised to sort of find out that that's like one of our chief exports. Yes, definitely. I think that's probably true. That's when we've been like gathering research and trying to get our sense of this world. That's been the 
the main thing that everyone has been happy to look at, but also the main thing that we all have kind of context for. Right. Like the minute you say American teen movie, like as you said, you had to come in and tell us about presidential elections, all this, because actually our knowledge did just come just stems from, from, these films. <laughs> from these American films. Let's rewind just a little bit. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about how Teenage Dick came into being? My, I have a friend named Greg Muscala who is an actor and uh, he has a cerebral palsy. We met in a group for writers under 30 in New York called Youngblood, which is based out of a theater called Ensemble Studio Theater. He was one of the actors that was constantly there, and so we collaborated in a bunch of different shorts and, and plays that I'd written, and eventually he wanted to start a theater company called The Apathite, which would be uh, centered on the disabled experience, and he commissioned a couple of writers to do different projects that would sort of illuminate the disabled experience like uh, from a contemporary context. And So he came to me with the idea of setting Richard III in high school and calling it Teenage Dick. And I had to have that title, yeah. so, I, um, <laughs> so I just, like, you know, like, absolutely, I'll do this. And so the genesis of it was that he wanted to take the most famous disabled character of all time and then look at the assumption within the original text that because uh, Richard's disabled, he's evil. And then, and then he kept on sending me these video clips of uh, American high schools today where there would be this act of kind of ostentatious inclusion where, like, a... Uh, football team would carry a disabled kid in for a touchdown or like uh, the like a cheerleading squad would uh, include a disabled kid in, in their cheer and, and how it was in a way the same kind of trap that like there's on one hand like you're you're disabled therefore you're a devil and then there's on the other hand like you're disabled therefore you're an angel mm-hmm. and how those tropes leave very little room for sort of a three-dimensional nuanced portrayal mm. um and then he's like go and so i uh, you know, so he kept on sending me clips, and I, uh, I, I take a long time to uh, actually start writing, even mm. though I'm percolating for, you know, it could be years before I actually write something, even though I'm actively thinking about it. Mm. So all this time, I was just like, I can't, I have to write this thing, because otherwise I'm going to take it away, give it to somebody else, and somebody else going to have that title. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, maybe, like a, like, a year or two later, it just sort of spat out of me, and, and then we workshopped it at several theaters around uh, the country, and it had its uh, world premiere with uh, Mayu Theater, which is a... Uh, Asian theater where I'm in residence in New York and was at the public, uh, which is also theater in New York. And did you, like, what did you know about Richard III before Greg proposed this to you? I mean, I had read it as literature uh, uh, several times through, you know, because I was an English major, and mm-hmm. like, uh, but even so, um, in like as early as high school, I'd read it. But what was really interesting to do was to step back from the kind of literary Richard III and look at how it was put together structurally just like sort of like like what are the bones of this play and like sort of how 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 are the scenes put together and so to do that kind of analysis which I sometimes do for like my other plays I'll I'll think of I want to write a play about this and like what are sort of plays that are in the same style or that like like have the same structure and then like even though I enjoyed those plays from like a kind of you know purely emotional or intellectual basis Mm. like to then like Actually, though, like, what is the, you know... What is it doing? Right, and so so it's interesting to kind of see how the... To me, it's like you have these more sort of long, drawn-out scenes that then fragment in the, in the later acts and becomes more impressionistic, and there was a sense that, like, you're, you're a sort of co-conspirator with Richard at the beginning of the play, and then and then you, at some point, turn against him, and then the play almost happens to him, whereas before mm-hmm. he's, like, conjuring the play... So I wanted to retain that for the structure of this, but then diverge from the sort of... I didn't want to do sort of like a rigid 
one-to-one -one for the rest of the... And what do you feel like, um, in, in breaking down the, the structure of Richard III, what do you feel like you, you've gained from it, that, outside of the exact structure, what do you think you've gained from it that like, has made its way into the, the tone or the, the play itself? I mean, I think that what's like really difficult, like because Shakespeare's canon and because you're, anything that you create in a contemporary way, like you're, you're riffing on or, or reacting to or like, you know, complying with or, or working against canon, like it's, mm. it's, yeah, I mean, like it's, it, because it's sort of foundational text, it's like so, so interesting and hard to sort of, how do you, how do you create a new thing, you know, and uh, without it being sort of a completely one-to-one -one adaptation, yeah. you know? So like I just found that there were in the same way that Greg was sort of approaching it from this is this is a image of a disabled character that's had like an outsized impact on like sort of how we as like a human community are perceived because you know you're you're the way that you perceive people in some ways starts with fictional portrayals right yeah. so there too it's like taking my kind of contemporary politics and and also I think like contemporary theater sensibilities in terms of like the you know, like like actors approaching text are going to go through with a more psychological approach than a outside-in approach these days, mm -hmm. right? And so and so, like, how do you impose those kinds of contemporary demands onto onto something that's canonical that you you know, in a way that you don't even know what you've internalized? Like, yeah, yeah. I know course. that that's like a so convoluted answer to it. But. No, no, no. I think that makes a lot of sense. And do you feel in doing the the work of adaptation? I guess I'm curious about. At what point did it feel like, okay, this is now my play, or this is now actually quite a liberating exercise, or did it kind of always feel like that? It, <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like anything feels liberating when you start writing, and then when people actually have to see it, then you're like, oh no. <laughs> so it initially felt liberating, but yeah. now we'll see whether I can get away with, um, yeah. you know, <laughs> messing with Shakespeare as an American, but... Uh, <laughs> What, it, what did feel uh, initially liberating, I should say, is that like when you look at just the structure of the play, but don't have to follow its plot, that's mm. uh, that's interesting to me because it's like they're like the originals providing you this lattice work that an audience will come in and have that uh, basic understanding, so you don't have to build that yourself. Somebody else built it for you. But that said, like if you are able to sort of put your own kind of themes and and uh, politics into it. You, it's it's in a way it's like not as hard as like writing a brand new play where you have to make everything from scratch. Yeah, and I think like certainly from when I first read it and being in rehearsals now, the the thing that I find so satisfying or so exciting about it is that you come in with an expectation of maybe even just like what we think adaptations are like that they are going to follow a very clear narrative, kind of honoring. But what happens in Teenage Dick is like you know we come in with Richard the Third, but actually with the, the impression of Richard III, but actually it's Teenage Dick, like it is a different story. Yeah. And there too, like when you were asking about like, is it based on any specific high school or like, I think that you also come in with the sort of like, oh, I get who these people are according to their like American high school film archetype. Mm -hmm. And then I, and then I try to subvert that and, yeah. and complexify it. And, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Throughout the course of the play, there are little Easter eggs that kind of refer a little bit to other kind of Shakespeare productions or plays and that or characters even and I just wondered if you wanted to speak a little bit about why why you wanted to include that yeah. or any of the pop cultural references I think that one thing that I flashed back to was being in high school and feeling as though that I was smarter than I actually was and not knowing where to put it and having a lot of like 
thwarted ambition and feeling as though like I, like I'm like bigger than my uh, circumstance, but but really you know it's a mark of immaturity more than anything else. And so I wanted for the character of Richard to he like he has this uh, sort of high faux Shakespeare dialogue that he puts on that he as a kind of almost way of showing off that has no social currency at all. But within that faux dialogue, like I, I thought that it would be really fun to kind of have all these illusions that none of the other characters in the play get, but the audience will get. So yeah, that in a way I'm like trying to use that language to make the audience co-conspirators with him and that like he has these references that like his that his other you know his his contemporaries don't get but that we get and therefore we root for him more. Yeah, yeah. I think that's great. I mean I know we were talking a little bit about yesterday. I was saying working on this play has made me think a lot about my own high school experience. <laughs> and I joked that it was a bit like the like therapy. Uh, and I wondered, um, uh, for us as audience members, what do you hope that we will take away from seeing Teenage Dick? I, uh, I'm so glad that you asked that now because I was asked that yesterday and had no answer. <laughs> <laughs> now I have more of an answer, which is that because I'm playing a little bit with, uh, with archetypes and with tropes, I think that like we as people sometimes lean so heavily on those tropes that we, in terms of our everyday interactions, and so I, I hope that as you watch these characters push against the kind of two-dimensional sort of frame that they were given at the top of the play, that, that we then take in other people in a more sort of holistic way, which is a very tall order, <laughs> but just, you know, but just But one like, I think it reaches. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, that's what we're going to spend the next few weeks being sure it does. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mike. Yeah, I'm uh, really happy to be here. Yeah, it's great chatting, and uh, let's go rejoin rehearsals. Okay. <laughs> that was me, Bly Stewart, talking to Mike Liu about his play Teenage Dick. Teenage Dick runs at the Donmar from the 6th of December 2019 to the 1st of February 2020. Tickets are on sale now at donmarwarehouse.com.